Thanks, Adam, for reading God's Word for us this morning. And uh, welcome again. My name is, is Bill Gorman, and I serve as the campus pastor here. And it's great to have you worshiping with us this morning. We're so glad that you have, have chosen to be with us. And uh, as we usually do, I always love to pray and ask for God's help um, as we open his word, just a recognition of our dependence on him as we study his word. So if you would bow your heads and join me in that. Father in heaven, we're so thankful that you have uh, revealed yourself and you've given us your word. Um, it's a treasure, and we want to understand it, and so um, we ask for your help in that now, and I, I just I pray that your spirit would be um, at work as we look uh, at the book of Lamentations this morning, and we pray this in Jesus' name uh, and for his glory. Amen. Well, when you look around at our world, you realize that, that something is not right, and you don't have to look very hard to see that the world in which we live is broken. I mean, if you just take the headlines from the last couple of weeks of news, right? I mean, uh, there have been train wrecks, literally multiple train wrecks, whether it was the one in Canada or the one in France, just outside of Paris over the last couple of weeks. I mean, there was the crash of the Asiana flight in San Francisco. And then if you even just sort of look at the headlines here in Kansas City, uh, in the metro area over the last couple of weeks, I mean, you realize that at this point, we are already at a place where there have been um, 59 murders this year in Kansas City. That's a little over two per week. And if that trend continues, we'll have over 113 people die by murder in the Kansas City metro area alone this year. And, and even if you zoom in a little bit more from kind of the national to our local, but just, just think about our congregation, uh, the Christ community, um, the Brookside campus, the Leeward campus, the downtown campus, just our, our church family. And I could tell you stories of just in the last couple of weeks of, of children and adults battling cancer, of people facing heartbreaking circumstances as they care for aging parents, marriages that, that are hanging on by a thread, people who have lost jobs, and, and on and on. And I think regardless of our religious or spiritual background or religious perspective on the world, whether we're Christian, agnostic, whether you consider yourself a believer or a seeker or a skeptic, I I think we can all agree that that all is not right in the world, that something is wrong. Where we would differ would be on how we explain the, the reality or the perception of the brokenness around us. And Christians believe that what's fundamentally wrong with the world is something called sin. And sin is really just a shorthand way of talking about all the ways in which we have rebelled against and continue to rebel against the God who has created us. We have gone against his design, chosen our own way. Sin always looks so good up front. It always looks good going in. But on the backside, it is nothing but misery. But wait a second. You may be thinking, okay, Bill, are you saying that, that all of the reasons that things are wrong in my life, the reason that I got sick, or, or the reason that my kids are making the choices they are, are, are all because of, of bad things that I have done? Or, or that all of those people on that plane crash were particularly sinful, and that's why the plane crashed? That if I do something bad, it's going to be something like this. 
don't know if you can see this. This is a great, I love Gary Larson's Far Side. So this has got this piano, the, the keyboard, this is God's finger is right over the smite button. You know, is, is God just always waiting there the moment you do something bad to hit the smite button and drop the piano on you? I mean, I, some people don't get Gary Larson, they don't like him. I, I think it's hilarious. Um, but is that God's posture? His finger always hovering over the smite button. And that's not what I'm saying this morning. It's not what I'm saying. Don't hear that. Yet every tragedy, every disappointment, every dark thing that happens in your life and in our world ought to remind us that we are on the backside of sin. Because none of this brokenness, none of this pain would have existed if we hadn't chosen to rebel in the garden, if we hadn't broken this world. None of it, none of the wars, the disasters, the disabilities, none of the families imploding, none of the shame that we experience, none of this. So thanks a lot, sin. I mean, this is where we're at now in the world. And Jeremiah, the the prophet who wrote the book of Lamentations, the little book of the Bible we're looking at this morning, understood this clearly. And in this book, he is watching a terrible siege and destruction of the city of Jerusalem and its people. And as Jeremiah watches this happen, he writes out a song of lament, weeping, crying out, angry and afraid before his God. But what we discover hidden in this dark and painful book is that even on the backside of sin, there is always hope. What we discover in Lamentations is that even on the backside of sin, even on the dark, broken backside of sin, there's always hope. And so this morning, as we look at Lamentations, particularly at Lamentations chapter 3, we're going to see first the backside of sin, the front side of hope, and then the upside of waiting. It's the backside of sin, the front side of hope, and then the upside of waiting. So if you haven't already, if you have a Bible with me, I'd love for, or with you, I'd love for you to turn with me to, to Lamentations chapter 3. Um, again, it's on page 688 in the Pew Bibles. Also, if you don't have a Bible, if you're here, you're a guest, you don't have a Bible, feel free to take one of the Pew Bibles home with you. We'd love for you to have a Bible if you don't have one. Um, page 688 there. And in verses 19 and 20 of chapter 3, we get a glimpse of what life feels like on the backside of sin. And again, sin always looks so good going in, but on the backside, it is miserable. And Jeremiah describes it this way. Look at verse 19. He says, Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it. It is bowed down within me. The picture of this wormwood and gall, wormwood was like a really bitter herb plant and, and gall is like a, the bitterest of substances. Jeremiah feels the, just the bitterness of this backside of a, of a city that has sinned against God and, and is facing the consequences of that. And this, he's hunched over, his soul is just being crushed under the weight of the agony that he's seen. And this is what the whole book of Lamentations feels like. I mean, as you read through, if you are reading through um, with us in open here and you read Lamentations this week, you feel the darkness of this. I just want to go back all through the heaviness of, of this book. And I'm just going to read an extended section just so we feel the force of what Jeremiah is experiencing. So if you go back to the beginning of chapter 3, just listen to what he writes. He says, I am a man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. 
He has driven me and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy. Though I cry out for help, he shuts out my prayer. Have you ever felt that? I cry out for help. It doesn't seem like he's answering. He shuts out my prayer. He's blocked my way with with blocks of stones. He has made my paths crooked. He's a bear lying in wait for me, a lion hiding. He turned aside my steps and tore me to pieces. He has made me desolate. He has bent his bow and set me as a target for his arrow. He drove into my kidneys the quiver, the arrows of his quiver. I have become a laughingstock of all the peoples, the object of their taunts all day long. He has filled me with bitterness and wormwood. Again, he has sated me with wormwood. He has made my teeth grind on gravel. He's made me eat dirt. That's the picture there. And he has covered me in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. Some of you are probably there this morning. You've, you've forgotten what happiness is. So I say, my endurance has perished, and so is my hope from the Lord. Jeremiah's in a dark place. He feel like, feels like God has abandoned him. My prayer's been shut off. God, you're, you're destroying this city, and, and, I, and I know, I mean, Jeremiah goes back and forth. He's like, I know this is a just thing that you're doing, God, but really this bad? So why would Jeremiah accuse God of inflicting such pain? What's going on in his world that, that makes this the circumstances that he faces? Well, we talked a little bit about it last week in Jeremiah 29. The people are being sent into exile. In this book, what Jeremiah is recording in Lamentations, what he's watching, that is the prelude to the people being sent into exile. The nation of Babylon has laid siege to the city. And so what would have the newspaper headlines in Jeremiah's day looked like back in 586 BC. What would have some of the headlines been in the Jerusalem paper back then? Here's some. Babylon destroys Jerusalem, entire families slaughtered in the streets. Temple reduced to rubble, priests and elders massacred. Women and children raped and murdered. Survivors, now slaves, forced out of their homes. Wanton starvation. Mothers forced to kill youngest to feed families. And you thought our headlines were bad. And I'm not making those up. If you read through the book of Lamentations, you see every one of those things happened during the siege of Jerusalem. It reminds me of 9-11 in New York when, when the Twin Towers were attacked. I think this is the only thing that it even comes close in, in kind of our contemporary experience to what happened to Jerusalem. And, and I still remember it so clearly, as many of us probably do, that day when the Twin Towers were attacked. I was a freshman in college. I had just started school. I'd just been there for a few weeks. And I remember I just walked out of a class and I was walking to the next class. And as I was walking down the hall, I noticed a group of students huddled around a TV in one of the classrooms. And I walked in and the second tower had just been hit. 
and that footage of the plane being looped over and over again of that second plane hitting the tower is one of those memories that's just etched in my mind. And I remember our campus was, was situated really near a Marine Corps base, actually. And so walking to chapel that morning to pray, seeing the Humvees coming down the streets and setting up roadblocks and the MPs setting up checkpoints around the base. And that was two buildings. This is a whole city wiped out. Imagine if all of New York was gone. That's what Jeremiah is watching happen. The Book of Lamentations, it's a collection of poems. And and there's like four poems that are grouped together. And they're acrostic poems. So that means that they each start with a letter of the alphabet. Each line stands of the line in Hebrew. So it always goes through. And kind of you get the sense of you're seeing the grief of lamentations, the grief of Jeremiah, it's expressed in kind of this A to Z, this completeness from A to Z, the grief being expressed. Lament is crying out to God when we are in pain. Lament declares that all is not right with the world. Lament is going to God even when we don't know what he's doing. And lament is actually really common in the Bible. Um, Many of the psalms, if you read through the 150 psalms, many of them are psalms of lament. Oliver read one for us earlier, Psalm 13. It's a song of lament. It's a crying out and saying, God, how long are you going to let this be this way? In fact, the whole book of Job, if you've ever known the book of Job, this man who suffers so greatly, the book of Job is in many ways a book of lament. But lament hasn't always existed. There was no lament in the Garden of Eden, not at the beginning. You see, lament exists because sin exists in the world. In Genesis chapters 1 and 2, there is no lament because there's no sin. God's creation is very good over and over. After God makes each thing, he says, this is good, it's good, it's good, it's celebration, it's joy. There's no sadness, there's no lament. But then you get to Genesis chapter 3. And Adam and Eve, God's image bearers, these creatures that God created in his image to entrust them to guide and lead his creation with them, they choose, they make this terrible choice to rebel against him. They believe that God is trying to keep his best from them. Through a series of lies, they believe that the true happiness, their true fulfillment can only be found if they actually kind of become their own and and run away from God and do their own thing. They turn their backs on God and they say they would rather have it their own way. They would rather get what they want than stay in a relationship with him. In essence, they, they send God away. They divorce God. And at that point, everything shatters. And fear and shame and suspicion and hatred and pain and disease and loneliness and yes, even lament now begin to flood into the world. Like a river that's topping over a levee, at first it's just a trickle, but within a few generations the wall has been broken down and pain and sin and lament flood through devouring everything. The backside of sin is an ugly place to be. But if it is so ugly and and its results are so awful, 
why do we choose it? I mean, why is it so attractive to us, right? I mean, I, I'm, I'll raise my hand to the first one. Sin always looks so good going in. It promises so much. But if we know what's on the backside, why are we so enticed by it? And I think it is because it does make those promises. Up front, it looks so good. And it always promises to deliver so much for such a low cost, doesn't it? It always offers so much for so little. But here's the thing. Sin always lies. Sin always lies. And it reminds me actually of one of my favorite paintings. Um, it's at the Nelson Atkins Museum here. And uh, it's a painting that's titled this, The Temptation of St. Anthony. And there's actually many depictions of that theme, The Temptation of St. Anthony, in religious art. But, but this one that's at the Nelson Atkins, it's by a Dutch painter named Jans Wallens de Kock. And it is of particularly powerful, because as you look at it, you see St. Anthony there, and there's this woman bringing a gift to him. And she looks beautiful, and there's this beautiful gift. But what we don't see until you look very, very closely at the painting is that it's just an empty promise. Notice the hem of her robe. It's, this is kind of a dark picture, but you see where you would expect to see a foot peeking out from underneath her hem. You see instead this green claw. This is what sin is. It looks so good. It looks beautiful. It offers gifts, but just underneath the surface, it is a monster that is waiting to devour. Such a powerful painting. Sin always looks so good going in, but on the backside, it's always miserable. The buzz is always fried by the hangover. The temporary thrill or comfort of porn is always dwarfed by the troubled marriage. The high of shopping is always crushed by the weight of debt. Like that email from the exiled prince of Nigeria offering you millions of dollars, sin always offers so much for so little, but delivers only fraud, right? Offers so much for so little, but delivers only fraud. We lament because we're not in the garden, because sin has entered the world. We lament because we are on the backside of sin, both individually and collectively. We experience hurt and brokenness, yes, because of bad choices and sinful choices we made, but we also experience brokenness and pain because people generations ago made choices that we had no control over, and yet we're reaping the consequences through no fault of our own. Now remember, not every bad thing that happens to you is the direct result of some bad thing that you have done. But ultimately, all suffering, all pain, all lament exist in the world because sin exists in the world. All is not as it should be. And so we lament. And this lament, this crying out to God when life comes apart, this is what we see in the book of Lamentations. And it isn't merely grumbling or complaining because true lament actually always leads us from despair to hope. And so notice how that little section ends in verse 21. It says, but this I call to mind, therefore I have hope. And in these verses, 21 through 24, we discover that on the backside of sin, if we have eyes to see it, we can discover the front side of hope. Even on the backside of sin, there's always hope. 
So what does Jeremiah call to mind? Literally, you could translate, forces his heart to remember. What does he force his heart to remember? What is it that gives him hope? Look again at verses 22 through 24. He says, therefore, or it says, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The front side of hope is the face of God's character, which Jeremiah recalls in these verses. First, he mentions God's steadfast love, his hesed love. We've been talking about that a lot, I feel like, in, as we've gone through open here, this, this Hebrew word hesed, God's covenantal, loyal love that, that never fails. It always remains true to his covenant with his people. His commitment never ends. God's loyal love knows no limit to his people. He's entered into this relationship with them and he is always faithful. Even when they are faithless, his hesed remains true. And therefore God's people, though they may be destroyed, though they may go into exile, though they may be sent away, they are not consumed. And this morning, it may feel like God has abandoned you. But I promise this, his promise here is that his steadfast love declares that that is impossible. Whatever you feel, it is not his abandonment. Steadfast love never ceases. Next, Jeremiah remembers that his mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. The word translated mercies here, again, it's another word that we've looked at a lot this year. It's, it's the word rachamim. It's the picture of a tender love of a mother for a child. And I'm sure all of us have had the experience of seeing this, especially, and I know many of you do, and thank you so much, serve down in our nursery, serve with our kids. You've had the experience of seeing a kid who is crying and upset and seemingly inconsolable, and then the moment their mom comes and they see their mom's face and mom takes them in her arms. They're quiet. They're happy. They smile. That's this rachamine, this tenderness, this love of a mother for a child that just wraps her child up in her arms and comforts her. God's mercies, his rachamine never ceases to his people. One scholar points out that this type of mercy, this tender love, this rachamim, goes the second mile, replacing judgment with restoration. I love that. Replacing judgment with restoration. God's tender mercies for his people never come to an end. They're new every morning. No matter how much pain you're in, no matter how uncertainty, how much uncertainty you face with your health or with your finances, no matter how badly you've wrecked your life, and, and some of you are looking at it and saying, I know I've made choices that have wrecked my life. No matter where you are at, if you are a son or a daughter of God through faith in Jesus Christ, his tender, comforting, healing love never comes to an end for you. Never Ever. His mercies are new every morning. Just like God's people when they were wandering in the desert and they didn't have any food, and every morning he would provide this manna, this food on the ground, this food from the dew. Every morning it was new. And just like that, just like the manna, God's mercies are new every morning. 
And then Jeremiah says, great is his faithfulness. And, and it's easy to say, great is thy faithfulness, or great is your faithfulness, great is his faithfulness, when you get the good report from the doctor, right? When, when, your, chi- when your kids are making those good choices that we always hear about. But Jeremiah says, great is his faithfulness as he's watching the city that, is, that he loves being just utterly destroyed. He says, God, I still trust you. And, and if there's one thing that I pray for myself and that I pray for my family and that I pray for, for each and every one of you, many of you, I pray for you this by name. That, that no matter what happens, no matter how bad it gets, that no matter how far away God seems, that we would continue to trust that we would say, great is your faithfulness, that we would say with Job, that though he slay me, I will hope in him. Old Testament commentator Charles Dreyer observes, he says, Jeremiah was taken back, was taken aback by the limitless supply of God's grace offered to him. And because of this, Jeremiah resolved to wait. He resolved to wait for God to act bringing about restoration and blessing. And this brings us from the front side of hope to the upside of waiting. Look at what Jeremiah writes in verses 24 through 27. He says, The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Did you catch that word that's repeated three times there, once in each verse? It is good. And what's being described as good here in these verses? The goodness that's being described is, is the waiting, waiting on the Lord. It's good, the Lord is good to those who wait for him. It is good that one should wait quietly. So what is the upside of waiting? What's going on here? What, what is Jeremiah doing? Well, Jeremiah, he moves from a place of despair on the backside of sin to a place of hope as he recalls God's character. And that now leads him to a place of patient trust as he waits for God to act. It moves him to a place of patient trust as he waits for God to act. You see, hope, fundamental to what hope is, it involves both waiting and trusting. Hope involves waiting and trusting. And and actually, the Apostle Paul, writing to um, the Christians who are in Rome in his letter to the Romans, he really makes this connection so clearly. And, And the Christians in Rome, too, were experiencing great suffering and great persecution. Listen to what Paul writes in Romans chapter 8. These are some of my favorite verses. He says, For now we know the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth. Paul says, Look, we know there's nothing is right with the world. Something is greatly wrong. All of creation is groaning. And not only the creation, but we ourselves are groaning who have the first fruits of the Spirit. We groan inwardly as we await eagerly for the adoption as sons and daughters, the redemption of our bodies. Now listen to where Paul says next. He says, for in this hope we were saved. And then he says, now hope that is seen is not for hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. John Calvin, the great reform reformer and church leader wrote these words in a lecture that he gave on this portion of Lamentations. 
He says, it is necessary in this world that the faithful should, as to outward things, be miserable at one time exposed to want, at another subject to various dangers, at one time exposed to reproaches and slander, and another harassed by losses. Why is this so, Calvinus? He's because, he says, because there would be no occasion for exercising hope were our salvation complete. You see, suffering provides us with opportunities to trust God even when it doesn't make sense, even when we don't know what he's doing. We provide a witness to his faithfulness even when life doesn't make sense by waiting and trusting. Waiting is hard. I mean, waiting is hard for any of us. Waiting when you're suffering is really hard. Waiting when you're suffering is really hard And yet the upside of waiting is that we learn to trust. And trust is what makes even the act of lament a healthy thing. Because what's the difference ultimately between this sort of faithless grumbling that is just grumbling and complaining against God and the difference between then a faithful lament? What makes the difference between grumbling and lament is trust and patience. Trust and patience. The healthy part of lament is trust that it exhibits as it waits on God's whose mercy are new every morning. You see, as we learn to trust, as our trust deepens, another thing happens. It actually leads us to be able to rest. It leads us to be able to rest even in the midst of suffering. Even when it seems like we're alone, even when it seems like God isn't resting, I love the psalmist in in Psalm 131. He gives a great picture of what this sort of trust-filled, hopeful rest looks like. Listen to these words. He says, O Lord, my heart is not filled up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. He says, God, I trust you. That's what he's saying in those verses. God, I trust you. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, Like a weaned child is my soul within me. 